It's week two of Film Noir here on Foreplay. We're just going to go ahead and skip 17 years of Film Noir. We never said this show was going to be thorough about our explorations of genres. This is this is the surface level so that you can dive deeper if you so choose. And we're kind of bookending film noir in that The Maltese Falcon is one of the kind of first classic film noirs. Yes, guys, I know there were some in the late 30s, but it, it was kind of the start of the, the classic era. And the end of that classic era is often seen as Touch of Evil in 1958. Uh, this is a movie that was both directed and starring Orson Welles classic Orson Welles move to both be the director and the star of the film. Uh, he is wonder. It's wonderfully directed as usual with Orson Welles. It's also wonderfully acted as usual with Orson Welles. But before we dive into touch of evil, we are going to talk about our sponsor for this show. It is liquid IV wonderful hydration supplement. Uh, very useful, not only if you're working out uh, and, and sweating a lot, but it's essential just to have good hydration generally. So if you are in, look, I'm in Lake Tahoe right now, high elevation, very dry. I've been drinking it here to keep myself hydrated just for daily maintenance. But if you're you know, out in the sun for a long period of time, if you're traveling through an airport, uh, if if you're taking a walk, if you are simply, you know, having a, a hard night out, let's say going a little hard, that's a great time to just chug some of this stuff will keep you uh, feeling better the next morning. I can say that for sure. Also has essential vitamins like B3, B5, B6, B12, vitamin C. You can get it with caffeine, with energy if you want that as well. So lots of options for you guys. Many, many delicious flavors. You have any favorite flavors, Thorne, from the stuff they sent you? I mean, I do like the strawberry lemonade one. I think that's pretty nice. I also quite like the tangerine. I think that's a pretty mm. nice one. Very good. Anything that's got something a little bit sweet to cover the bitterness, <laughs> I think it's a good one. Excellent. Uh, so real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Grab your Liquid IV in bulk at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code LFN at checkout for Last Free Nation. And please do that, guys, because supporting our sponsors is the very best way to support us and to make sure shows like Foreplay can continue to move forward. Uh, and we love doing this. We love doing this. I really enjoy watching these films and chatting with you uh, guys every week. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm excited to continue into film noir. So where do you guys want to start with? with I'll tell you where we start evil. here, because here's the problem. This is my territory. I'm a massive fan of Orson Welles, as in I've like yeah. read a lot of biographies of his work, books about like his battles with the studio. There's a great one called Against the System. I think it's called Despite yeah. the System or something. That's a great one if people want to read it. And basically, this movie, you have to talk about this aspect before you can talk about it as a movie, because as Monty says there, even though this is classically listed as a directed by Orson Welles movie, and he's obviously the main, like not the protagonist, but he's like the, essentially the anti-hero character in this one, right? That actually was not supposed to ever be the case what happened yeah. was this is already when Orson Welles ages ago pissed off the studio system remember the magnificent Ambersons the one that famously they like brutalized and he the ending was even deleted and has never been seen that was like the 40s that was right after Citizen Kane that was 42 this movie is the end of the 50s what happened was basically Monty I've seen a lot of documentaries about this topic basically what happened was apparently Orson Welles was hired to play the role of the Hank Quinlan character in the movie the movie as we're going to get to is a, obviously a Charles 
uh, Heston project. Like, he's the main leading actor, obviously the reason why the movie is made. Charles Heston, it turns out, was a massive fan of Orson Welles. And even though Orson Welles already has been somewhat pushed out of Hollywood, like, he doesn't get to direct movies. He can just be these sorts of characters, which, by the way, was one thing Orson Welles was fabulous at in his career. He understood casting. He would always say his archetype is the king archetype. He plays, the, like, big male character or the older male character or, like, a king or a boss or something. That's He knew what, essentially, his skill set was. So he was actually just hired to play this role. And then what happened was they had some sort of an issue, Dalton Heston, with, like, the studio over who the director was. And he basically said to the studio, like, well, you know, we've got Orson Welles right here. Like, like he would do it. Like, he's a mate of mine. Like, let's just give him the gig. So they did. But then the downside is, because Orson Welles is essentially the archetype of the auteur. He's not just a guy who makes a film. Like, if people don't know, when Alfred Hitchcock makes films, the reason why he made a bazillion is he used to make, like, three a year or something. He would just really get the script, process it, act it, bam, that scene's done. Out. Orson Welles was in the sort of Stanley Kubrick vein of, like, I want to control every element of it, and I want to do something, and I'm, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to rewrite this scene right now, and go into back in my trailer, come back, I've rewritten it. So, apparently, he supposedly, for this movie, took this script, which is a quite straightforward script, and just redid the whole thing, and essentially it became an Orson Welles movie, but then this is the second detail, and then we can get into talk about it, which is, just as before the movie was made, there's all this confusion, who's directing it, oh, he gets to do it in the end. Afterwards, essentially, when you go to watch this movie, one thing you're going to find is, well, which version do I watch? There's like restored version, <laughs> the recut, the... What they did was, for a long time, this movie was not the movie Orson Welles intended. Essentially, they took the movie from him. Supposedly on this one, they even physically locked him out of the set and he couldn't go in and edit anymore. And they essentially just said, and he claims there's no reason for this because it's part of his like sob story about Hollywood. He says, essentially, they just took over and just like cut scenes, added shit that wasn't in his movie and just changed fundamentally parts of the film because for whatever reason, they just didn't like it or it's implied by him, you know, elements within the studio system wanted to fuck with him and sort of stick it to him and show that, you know, you're not bigger than the system. Because if people don't get it, the the crazy thing about Orson Welles' career is it starts in cinema with Aus with Citizen Kane, which is still considered by some the greatest movie ever. But that is actually what dooms him because since he comes in and his first movie is some like out there, incredible or ambitious movie that's getting all these... It means that everyone else in the system on some like Ayn Rand shit really is just like, well, who the fuck are you to just come in and be the king of the whole... Suppress this guy. It really is like some mad Ayn Rand like, protagonist plot line where the whole world's against you and they're all shutting you down so the funny thing is even though this is hailed as a classic movie and if you like Orson Welles like I do it is a great movie it's one of his best parts ever it actually has an incredibly sort of fraught production history and some really weird dynamics going on behind it despite the fact again the finished product is very good yeah I mean ex excellently told you know hard to add anything to that I mean basically without Charlton Heston uh, being the star he is and applying the pressure he did this movie doesn't get made in as we know it. Orson Welles certainly doesn't direct it. And and trust me, Orson Welles' fingerprints are all over this film in terms of how it looks and how it feels. Um, and and you know, it's it's wild how... You know, I look at Orson Welles' career, because I'm a Simmons Duncan, I'm a huge fan. I've seen every single movie he's got. I own pretty much all of them as well. Uh, I it, It's crazy that because he just wanted to be an artist and do things his particular way uh he was essentially reviled by the hollywood system and spent you know he could have had a much more prolific filmography if he hadn't have been cast out into europe where he had to raise money independent money for films by whining dining schmoozing wealthy yep. people 
uh, which is essentially, you know, he he became almost like not a grifter, but he had to sing for his supper. You, you know, know when people make fun now and they link all those videos where he's all old and fat and drunk and yeah. he's doing like wine commercials and stuff. When they do that, they don't seem to realize he actually in a fucked up way was doing that like Robin Hood style. He would do that, yeah. get the money for it, and then just turn around and use that like to make the next scene of like, you know, like whatever, think of some of this later Othello or something, you know, the ones he made later in his career. He, yeah. For real, this guy like on his own dime would make films. So he actually is like a true, like essentially the joke is he's actually the guy who seems to have loved Hollywood the most and they just fucking wrecked him completely to be fair those wine commercials are very funny (laughs) yes i mean listen also this is the thing as well like you know orson wells is often framed as a curmudgeon i don't know if it's because of the characters uh, that he played in his career because he was an excellent villain but you know he he also understood how to play flawed characters you know people forget he was a great actor um But but the 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 fucked the fucked up aspect of it is he was a really generous spirit, you know, like a really gregarious guy who liked who treated his actors. You won't find many. He's known for these tantrums when he's doing a commercial read. Yeah, because fucking it's bird's eye frozen peas, or it's you know what I mean. Like yeah, obviously he's he's one of the greatest actors of his generation. Yeah, he's going to be a bit pissed off if they're making him say silly things. But he wasn't like that on a set. He was very much an actor's director, and 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 it's sad because when he died in '85, everybody comes out and they've got all these good stories to tell about him, and you're like Hollywood fucking destroyed this dude, and this movie cements it. Yes. <laughs> this is the this is the end. I mean, this movie is as interesting because all of the ramifications off screen, you know, as it is on screen. Well, I also think, you know, people can complain, or there are all these issues that people had with Orson Welles, such as when he did commercials, he would. Well, first off, he was just really drunk sometimes, and that that is difficult to work around. But secondly, people would complain that he would be changing the language or rewriting it or trying to deliver it in a specific way. And how is that a complaint? He's a genius. He's a genius. Like, if you think about the level of creativity coming from War of the Worlds, obviously, which was something of his own invention that is still something, the radio drama that convinced people that aliens were actually invading Earth at the time was just... Revel, it was revelatory in the way in entertainment, right? In the way that people responded to it, um, really like a watershed moment in modern entertainment, right? And when we think about the fact that he did write a lot of a lot of great lines, he did act in these movies. He ha- he was an insanely talented director. He's just the complete package. So it's crazy that that people have these complaints because of course he knew better than these people making these commercials, and he could do a better job selling their products than they ever could. But everyone else's egos got in the way of Orson Welles because they couldn't actually identify that he was just the best at all of these things. And had they actually just let him loose, not only would they have saved money because he can do all phases of the movie, basically, right? You, he does like 10 people's jobs every time that he's in one of these films. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you had kind of unleashed him, we would have gotten even more great Orson Welles movies. And so it is oh, very I mean, it's, disappointing. It's no coincidence that his first film after this, and we're talking like it was about four or five years later, it was the trial. It was an it was the adaptation of, of the Kafka novel, you know, because I think he really felt you know that that was what Hollywood was essentially doing to him. I think I think he he had a, a, a real kind of like 
bit a, a justified bitterness about how he had been treated well it's also yeah. i think it takes a special person you know as i was watching this film and i think this is the like the third time i've seen this movie and i like it more and more every time i watch it i have to say and it yeah. really does provide unlike the maltese falcon which doesn't really go beyond style there's some really interesting conversations about race racism and yep. mexico american relations in this movie and i think it's very successful at, at brokering that but show me another time when a when an, a star actor slash director would cast himself in a role where he has to be kind of a racist piece of shit and then be gross very intentionally. And he he is the villain of this film, and he is really despicable in many ways. And it, Orson Welles is just, he's like, yeah, I'll do that. I want to be known for this part, and I'm going to intentionally direct myself in a way to make me look gross. It's not bad, because he does an insane performance, right? And I think the themes of the movie come through, but he basically, you know, is the person is the he's the he's the the one the audience dislikes in this movie and i think it it really takes a strong personality to write direct and act yourself into that position willingly right yeah uh, and and you know i i i definitely want to talk about that because i th i think there's a lot of nuance on the race discussion sure, in this yeah, film for sure so i'll i'll quickly whack out the plot there you go right basically uh it's at uh, a mexican border town and uh, uh, this, the movie opens with one of the best opening shots in cinema history. Uh, there's a bomb. It's literally Chekhov's bomb, right? There's a, there's a there's a bomb placed in a car, and we see the car drive off. It passes a couple who are the Mexican special prosecutor Miguel Vargas, played by Charlton Heston. Some argue problematically because yes, no he way. is in brown. He is in brown face. Oh, we'll get to that. Uh, I do, actually don't yeah. think it's problematic because I think it actually reinforces the positive I, qualities what what they're trying to do with the theme i think it's actually we'll get to that in a yeah we'll get yeah to that yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get there and anyway he's in honeymoon he's married he's a mexican who's married uh an american woman played by uh, janet lee uh, Susie. and anyway uh the bomb goes off boom right in front of him and because it's in a border town and the bomb was planted on one side and and the jurisdictions on the other essentially uh american police officer who was played by Orson wells a fat disgusting one-legged crook who literally emerges the first time you see him he gets out of a car and there's a hard close-up on his face and he's got a mouth like a dog's arsehole with a cigar screwed in it and he's fat and sweaty and his ties <laughs> fucking brilliant anyway he and, and and vargas are having this kind of like battle of wills around the investigation and during that investigation quinlan that's uh Austin wells's character is planting evidence and vargas can't believe just how unbelievably corrupt uh he is while that's going on because vargas is a special pro special prosecutor and has investigated mexican crime families there is a underling boss called uncle grandy that's what they call him in the town who is the acting leader of a crime family that vargas has been actively investigating and has got indictments on the original leader so they decide and they're th gonna the family's running a drug life. ring by the way yes. so that's there's, yeah, a, exactly. there's a henchman the the grandy boys so they are running a, uh, an illegal narcotics 
Varric's ring, which is why <laughs> Vargas is investigating them. But Grandi is Mexican by birth, but he's actually an American citizen, which is important. So this is all taking place on the Mexican-California border. And part of the interesting aspect, which also comes into play in Chinatown as well, is like who has the rights to jurisdiction, yeah, right the there. jurisdiction, yeah. basically, which is a huge factor in, yes. in Chinatown as well. So part of the one of the things about film noir is like, all of the, you know, it's film noir is an exploration of like how you can dodge the law or get through these legal loopholes to commit crimes and like who can actually stop these people. So continue, Richard. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it, we're nearly at the end. Uh, Vargas uh, becomes so disgusted by what he sees procedurally from Quinlan and obviously as a Mexican uh, is trying not to let, you know, his nationality inform how he handles what is racism institutional racism from the police force but he manages to convince uh quinlan's partner to basically uh wear a wire and say uh, he's been planting evidence and doing fucked up things for years uh it ends in a shootout uh where uh quinlan attempts to shoot vargas uh after killing his own partner the partner shoots quinlan in the back vargas gets away and uh wonderful scene of Orson Welles' fat corpse, just which is all prosthetics at this time, of course. He's not even really obese at, at, at this moment, uh, floating down a river while two people just watch and just go, yeah, he was a massive piece of shit. And that's the end of the film. Um, and and what, what I'll, I'll, I'll say right out the gate, the characters and the interplay and the fucking cinematography, and it, it's this movie is just an assault on the senses right from the get-go it's almost like the plot is incidental i think i think a lot of people don't get the the subtleties of the plot until like the second time they watch this film or the third because you are just blown away you know no pun intended by this opening scene which is yeah. one of the most audacious cracking shots ever. it's so crazy it, actually i was watching that and i was like wow because it's the architecture. First off, the, the the aesthetic of this movie is absolutely beautiful with the kind of Mexican, Spanish-American uh, architecture on the border and all of the neon signs and like the strip club that, that that's there. But they come out and they do this incredibly long tracking shot that was really complicated with a bunch of cars going every which way, tons of extras in the background, characters walking out of the shot. And then like Charlton Heston like walks out of the shot, then walks back into the shot where the bomb is planted in the trunk. And then you follow this car that's going over to the american border with the explosion that happens at the end which triggers the the all the rest of the plot and the investigations that occur but it really is this just was, a remarkable piece of cinematography there's actually this a story to this by the way uh, oh sorry go on Dylan. yeah yeah there's actually a quick story about this actual opening shot though which is one it is real they didn't fake it they yeah. didn't like you know stitch together two scenes or, or there's no there's no special cheat cut of a, you know you go past a wall and you transition it is a real mega long opening shot that's choreographed like you say and the story goes at least is what they say in the documentaries the story goes that they actually got it on the very last take that what supposedly was happening for real and this is mental money because it sounds like some mad comedy skit right supposedly they were doing the whole fucking thing and you know at the end of the shot that like traffic type guard says a line apparently that guy just kept flubbing his lines every time and so at the end they say with like almost no light left that they're filming they basically just told him like you've got it fucking right and they just like got it right on the last one and they get this shot but the reason why that's mental is because like you say it's one of the most iconic opening shots ever in the history of cinema especially the way it's done like it's so telegraphed they put their 
Darmain and you follow it around. That's why, if you don't know, because of the era, like, if it had have been cheated in some way, the joke is almost harder tech to cheat you and do all this yeah. stuff because it's such an incredibly complicated scene. But it, that just really sets the ambience of this movie. Like, it starts with someone actually trying to kill the hero with a fucking bomb. You're just into so, the movie immediately. This was like the gold standard of the continuous sort of tracking shot. Right. For for years, I mean, it was it was the go to example. It's it's a little over three minutes, uh, and then obviously Goodfellas becomes that. And what what's interesting Which as well was intentional from Scorsese wanting to do his own version of, of it. Course. I'm sure, yeah, exactly. But then, but then the ultimate one is uh, is Robert Altman, who uh, Robert Altman in the Player in '92. Yes, he wanted to he wanted to fucking top it all, and so he was inspired by this opening shot, and he does a an unbroken eight minute shot. Which is even shot in a very similar way to the Touch of Evil because it's a, yes. it's a back lot of a car. Uh, so, but but up up until people started having the tech to <laughs> sort of do it, and then there's know, Birdman. It, this, this was it, and then yes. there's Birdman, which is literally just an entire movie in one take. Uh, which cheating, is, of course. Yeah. Sure, uh, cheating yeah. a little bit, but there there are like very very long oh, shots very in long. Birdman, yeah. and it, I love totally. that movie. I really enjoy that movie. I, one of my faves as well in modern times. But yeah, so uh, look, uh, uh, we, we let's get the racial stuff out of the way because uh, um, uh, the it, it, it's it's a talking point. Like you know, uh, film analysts talk about this, and there's a lot of you know, not, there's not a conclusive side of the fence to stand on. Uh, Charlton Heston is playing a Mexican. Um, and so there's a couple of things to consider there. You know, yes, brown face, I, I, would, I would imagine, is distasteful. Um, and you sort of, you can't necessarily dismiss it. It's just, it's just something that happened back then. Um, but uh, what, what I would say as a counterpoint to that is the way this script is written is that Vargas is the you know, unimpeachable, virtuous. He's the noble hero. He's he's the he's the morally upstanding character in the film. He's the he's the. He moral even influences other hero. characters to be more yes. virtuous. Exactly, and and um, without Charlton Heston, this movie doesn't get made at all. It was Correct. a star vehicle. Like I said, it's his project. They, they wouldn't yeah. make it if he wasn't in it. Exactly. Yeah. There's no. So, there's no that's the, that's the one weird angle about this whole topic. Like, let's just put the cards on the table. What hmm. famous Mexican actor exists in fucking Hollywood in 1957 or whatever? Like, as you say, like essentially, you painted into a corner on this. Do you want the movie made? Yes. Well, you better have someone like Charlton Heston. Okay, we got him. Well, why is he playing that? Kind of, well, you know what I mean? Like, well, which do you want the movie or not? Would it be yeah. less racist for the movie not to exist? I don't. That's why on this one, I feel like this one's almost a reach that people think this is racism. I'd even say this angle, right? If you're going to do the whole thing, like it's brown face, right? So do you just prefer when people don't use any makeup at all? Like, should he just should he just essentially do a Sean Connery and speak Scottish, but say he's a character from Mexico? Is that would that be better? Maybe because it just they don't pull off the makeup very well. I'll say that. But to me, the, the biggest problem I have with this is this: this just becomes political when people do this too hard. Like this movie is not made to do a racist stereotype of a Mexican character using an American actor. So there's one. We're not doing that. So it's not intended to be racist. Two, it's actually like you say, quite a fucking I'd say quite a generous and fucking magnanimous sort of rendering of what like a Mexican cop would be like relative to the other people in the story. And then lastly, I'll just say this: we you can't. 
I will absolutely not tolerate a world in which anyone black can play like Queen Elizabeth II did a Hollywood movie, but then everyone who isn't black can never play a black character. Like, what are we doing when we set up that precedent there? Because I'm all in on the idea that, like, have great actors play any roles they want. I even said on the past one, I actually think that's part of the genius of Sean Connery's career. He didn't try to do a Leonardo DiCaprio dodgy South African accent. He would just be himself. And what you would do is just go, you know what? Essentially, the choice I make in a Sean Connery movie is, is he so brilliant doing Sean Connery that it makes up for the character not being, like, accurate to, you know, dialects, backgrounds, etc. If it's good enough, then you accept it. You go, brilliant, it's a Sean Connery movie, but I can accept that weird, jarring element. So mm. I would just say on this, Richard, like, do you actually have a problem with this film? Is it, do you feel uncomfortable? No, I mean, for the, me, the for me you have to also appreciate the, the sensibilities of the time. You have to understand that Orson Welles is an incredibly uh, sensitive man about these topics this is a man who's tra traveled yeah. the world he's seen he's you know he you know very much he, he actually if people don't know he actually put on like a theater play in new york that with an all-black cast yes i mean i think he was like 20 in his 20s at the time or something yeah. he's actually like a, a famously like an incredibly like outgoing individual on these topics yeah and and knew the history involved in you know mexico modern mexico as we know it now and the america's relation with it was very much a, a understood uh latino culture because you know he spent a lot of time you know in in in, in hispanic culture he spent a lot of time in spain and he loved you know he loved yep. in fact he, he's even he's his ashes are even scattered in a in a in spain uh in a in a bullfighters makes sense if people uh, don't know it's like him, he loved he loved bullfighting yeah. didn't he yeah so you know th th this this guy uh you know he wasn't this he wanted this movie where he wanted the white cop to be the bad guy and he wanted the vector through which we saw his corruption to be racism yes and the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the quite specifically because his wife was killed by someone he said was mixed race and so for me i understand it yes there's some caricatures in in the street criminals yeah, yeah, yeah um but i almost feel that that is a nod to the type of movies that were being made in the 50s 50s is when chicano cinema starts like rising up and by the 60s you've got bona fide you know in the same way you had like a black exploitation movement you started having like mexican films being made in american soil with a lot of actors that would go on yeah. to become household names in the modern era chicano cinema really starts in the 50s and i think by having these caricatures of you know these like oh yeah they're very one note mexican criminals although you will notice in the gang are white people too it's not a racial gang it mm -hmm. is just a gang of low lives and, and um, by the way know, all these all the grandy family you know they they live on the american side and they own the hotel on the american mm -hmm. side and grandy is an american citizen he says that yes. so you yes, know he says that exactly almost, almost rejecting in a way you know quite quite you know subtly you know they're saying it's almost like the it's america that corrupts right yes. and, and 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 so vargas yes it's charlton heston yes he's not called he's not mexican by birth um but you know in terms of what this movie says and how it presents a mexican character as being unimpeachable breaking away from all the lazy stereotypes the sombrero wearing siesta having that was like you know comic relief up until this point mexican actors played uh, this sound you know this is just true they played the gardener in the background or you know and they might get a few lines or whatever and it's fucked up uh, that that it was like that uh, but i you have to look at this historically and what comes in the 60s and 70s and say uh, along racial lines it might not be the right way to get to the destination 
but it does help us get to the destination so, where you have more Mexican actors in prominent roles. Yeah, and and as the point's already been made that this wouldn't have been done without Charlton Heston because he is the star, and this wasn't even the apex of Charlton Heston's popularity. That oh, would come oh, with like Ben Hur, which was released uh, yeah, yeah. It was released a year later, right? And uh, look, I'm not going to justify this by saying there are other big films in the era that did this, so it's okay because obviously The Conqueror is a very famous movie where John Wayne plays Genghis Khan, and it's like. I think way more offensive than this movie in terms of the look of it, at least. Um, But I also think that you have to look at the goals of this movie and the goals of this movie and the themes of racism and like overcoming the the, the perception of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans are very clear. And it's really clear that the movie is presenting Vargas as this educated, erudite, noble person. and we don't get that from Quinlan at all, who's who's Orson Welles' character. He is the scumbag who is dishonest. And, you know, it, it really, I think, skillfully navigates these topics of racism. And clearly, at the end of the day, Orson Welles was trying to improve the American perceptions of Mexicans and have people, uh, you know, examine their own biases in that regard. And yeah, my question I'm- and my question is this. Beyond the fact that there weren't probably any big Mexican American actor, Mexican or American actors of Mexican descent who could play this role, the next question is like, I think actually by casting Charlton Heston in this role, you are increasing people's affinity for Mexican, even though he is not Mexican, because he's a huge star and he is stepping into this role. And if you love Charlton Heston and you see him in this in this role and you see him in this new light, does it actually reinforce the message of the and the themes of the movie of he you know Mexicans are being unfairly persecuted? I've got um I've got an extract here from from an NPR article from 2011 where uh, it's a Mexican heritage writer who interviews a Mexican heritage professor, I believe, of film studies who teaches at the University of Texas. And I and I cut this out because I thought, you know, if it's three white dudes talking about this, obviously people might <laughs> sure. be like, well, yeah, what, 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 what the fuck do you know, you know? But anyway, so here, here it is. He says, um, this is what Charles Ramirez-Berg says. Uh, you have the Mexican as the hero of the film, and that is very rare, says Charles Ramirez-Berg, who grew up in El Paso, Texas, across the border from Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. Uh, Ramirez teaches film at the University of Texas and wrote the book Latino Images in Film. I know Heston is not Latino, and he has to play a Mexican and all that stuff, Ramirez says, but still, the idea that you have the leading star in this film playing a Mexican, and the Mexican who's the hero, that's Orson Welles changing things up and making it much more powerful. Vargas isn't just a good Mexican, he's an educated Mexican, Mm -hmm. and in a Hollywood movie made in 1958, uh, that is powerful, especially when you consider that in the novel the film is based on, Badge of Evil by Whit Masterson, Heston's character is Anglo, not Mexican. In other words, words, Wells intentionally made Vargas the antithesis of Hollywood's traditional portrayal of Mexican characters. And on the other hand, Hank Quinlan, the film's American police captain in charge of the car bomb investigation, is a morally contemptible man played by Wells himself as the embodiment of evil. So it's about a dishonest cop, and it's even worse because he's the most celebrated cop, and everyone thinks he's a hero, and yet he's thoroughly corrupt, and on top of that, he's a racist. So I mean that's 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 a that's a <laughs> not, Mexican not, heritage professor of film, you know, yeah. his take on it and how he was able to engage with the movie and its importance. So I uh, know that that that's a compelling argument for me. That sways me. Very not much. not yeah, exactly. And not only that, but um, you know, the character 
Vargas is in an interracial relationship yes. with an Ameri a white American woman, right? And mm -hmm. that scene is he he seems to be by all accounts a great husband and and trying to you know in love with her. So yeah. I don't know. I think I, I think it's overblown, and I think you just have to look at it from the period as to what was possible to accomplish at that time and see this actually is an extremely progressive film based off of the circumstances the way, they found themselves in. The more important thing is he's actually just not that good in his role in this movie. Like even though Charlton <laughs> Heston, by the way, is a, by the way, a brilliant actor at playing an earnest, like straight up character like this normally, mm -hmm. he just, it, that's the part that is a bit giant to me. It's just, it doesn't quite work for me in this movie. Like the, I, like I sure. actually don't really ever buy that he is Mexican. Essentially. It's nothing to do with the brown face. Or, essentially he just does still just come off as Charlton Heston. Like he he's one of those characters where like, I think for me, the role didn't work. And like the analogy I would use is people might know in hip-hop there's a famous reference people always give which is if you remember there was a song that jay-z did called renegade where he had eminem feature on it but famously eminem sort of torched him on it even though jay-z's like himself one of the greatest rappers ever so famously people always say like eminem basically killed you on your own shit that's what charlton heston did to himself here he had a movie that was literally it's a charlton heston movie bro and awesome wells murks you on it this is like this is this is this is why, by the way. Here's the joke I said earlier about the the when we talked about the Maltese Falcon. That's because of the era that Bogart's so much above them. This is just why. This is why, like me and Richard are talking also. About, this is why I revere this guy, mate. This is 57, and he's that much ahead of people like Charlton Heston, who are brilliant actors themselves. Like Orson Welles, beyond steals every scene he's in in this movie. Like yes, he's the director, so he does do like Richard says. He does some amazing use of close-ups in this film because this guy's face is one of those faces like. Like every frame could be a painting. It's like it shows so much, and the it's the fact it's so absurd. Like if people don't know, it is a ridiculous irony that he is not at all overweight when he made this film. This is actually when you go back and look when he's more like his Citizen Kane days, where he's just like baby faced, like Leonardo DiCaprio esque figure who's actually like famously like very good looking and was if people don't know was very successful with women and like a, a raconteur, an outgoing guy. And so they actually they, think how bold it is. Like think about all the people, for example, in esports who were fabulously look good looking and all their social medias, all their insecurities about him. And I don't look that good. And guys, oh, sorry. And what was anyone saying? He's doing the opposite. He's going, I'm one of the biggest film stars ever. Fuck it. Actually get prosthetics and make me look like a really disgusting, ugly, dirty, grimy person so that he'll perfectly fit this role that, by the way, I kill. Because his role in this is fucking amazing. It's like I said, when we were previewing this genre, I don't think this is actually like a truly great film. I think it's a good film. And I understand why the cinema might, the actual studio might have fucked it up for Orson Welles. I think his performance though, is one of the best ever. That's why I gave the analogy. For me, it's a bit like Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York. You don't have to like that film. It, you yeah. must watch it to see Daniel Day-Lewis' performance though. And he is unbelievable in this. Like I say, it is an irony that it's all prosthetics making him look like he literally did look like 20, 30 years later in his life. And crucially, like you were saying about the whole angle that he's corrupt, etc. I think that is actually one of the most genius plot lines or like uh, elements to a plot I've ever seen because it's so complex. People don't get this. A lot of people watch this film and they think, right, all right. So basically like, because you can see very early on, like he's just openly admitting that he's doing a bunch of fucking shady shit in the dialogue. That's all right. He's the villain. It's like, no, what makes this movie genius is that it was neither. It was both. And like, if you actually listen to what's taught, what he's saying, the Hank Quinlan character and what his partner, the guy who's the one who's tortured and sort of has to come to the side of Vargas, 
If you listen to what they're saying about his past cases, here's the complicated thing. This is actually philosophy embodied, essentially. His philosophy is the ends justify the means. So because he actually does have this, like, intuitive feel from his leg that someone's guilty, he's the cop where, essentially, if he knows you did it and you definitely are the guy, but he doesn't have the evidence, in his mind, it's better that you're found guilty than you get to go scot-free. So he will absolutely, and his partner, plant the evidence. And the reason why that's so interesting to me is, in this case, at the end, in this movie, he's not doing it. That's totally not legit. But it's implied that in the past, some of the cases, which if you notice, they even tease almost like that Nolan movie, Insomnia, that like, there's that concept in American Police, isn't there? Like, if you're found corrupt, sometimes it reopens your past cases. So there's that whole concept of like, maybe he did do the wrong way of catching the right bad guys, but now it's going to ruin everything, isn't it? Because finally, when he's actually fucked with the wrong person who didn't do the crime, he's trying to sort of I mean, they also imply like the whole alcoholism things brought into like a bad decision yeah. and stuff. But I thought that was like a key part that I think people will miss here. It's not at the end that like, yeah, he was corrupted. He all, all he ever did was fuck people over. It's actually implied he was sort of like, he was like a fucked up anti-hero before. And then he just turns evil at the end of this movie. Like, like truly embraces like the bitterness in his heart or something. I thought that was like yeah. a subtle part that some people sometimes miss in this movie. Yeah, and, and you know, th th this is essentially, you know, like it it's very subtle as a backstory. Because they're not trying to make him a sympathetic character because, of course, he isn't. In fact, the movie sort of would fall down if he was actually yes. broadly sympathetic. But obviously, the death you know what's happened, right? You know when he bumps into Marlena Dietrich's character, the tarot reader, you know, bar owner, Tana. You know, she, which you can't even recognize him. It, you know, he's so fat and disgusting now. Um, she can't recognize him. She can't recognize that they used to be friends. Have you forgotten your old friend? I told you we were closed. I'm Hank Winland. I didn't recognize you. You should lay out those candy bars. And he, you know, is, is, is clear. You can immediately, from these little cues in the movie, understand his wife gets murdered. He hits the bottle. He becomes a bad cop who wants to put down bad men, you know, as quickly as possible. And even has an argument about it with, with Charlton Heston, yes. which is one of the best lines of the movie. Charlton Heston says to him, a policeman's job is only easy in a police state, which is the, that's the crux of it right there. In any free country, a policeman yeah. is supposed to enforce the law, and the law protects the guilty as well Our as the innocent. job is tough enough. It's supposed that. to be. It has to be tough. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. That's the whole point, Captain. Who is the boss, the cop or the law? And it's a line where the Quinlan guy even says, my job is to put someone away from this. Yeah. He doesn't even say like to investigate. It, like yeah. you say, his job he views is just take people off the street. Exactly. And and so at the end, when he's faced with the prospect of his legacy kind of unraveling, that's when he goes all in. That's when he goes all in on, fuck it, I'll murder someone. Fuck it, I'll, I'll murder Vargas if I have to, because I don't want all my convictions to potentially, you know, get undone, because that's that that tragically is his life's work. But, you know, so th this this film is a very broad condemnation of sort of, you know, police corruption, unchecked, you know, police powers. But it's also a character study of how, you know, the lies that we tell ourselves yes. become our identity. Um, and, and they, you know, he's been physically distorted, you know, but, but, but also he's emotionally distorted through grief and pain and bitterness and racism and all these other malignant personality traits. So, I mean, it's a, 
it's a it's as i said orson wells is the absolute heart of this movie it's it's a it's a very dark heart but his performance and his understanding of characterization and how you don't go you don't have to you don't have to make somebody likable to make the audience you know want to see more of them that's what essentially propels this movie forward and and, and really makes it something special yeah, I also think that, you know, going back to the themes of like with Quinlan, like whether the ends justify the means, that's actually brought up too with Vargas when he has, um, when he uses the wire and chases them around in that very iconic scene at the end where he's he's following them, which is that he is doing something that is ostensibly like surreptitious and illegal in order to nail Quinlan in the end and get the mm. recording and the confession that he needs because there's no other real way to acquire this evidence, but he is being deceptive in the way he does that. And and there is kind of a, you know, a question of has Vargas kind of lost his, well, his morals by doing that's, this? That's one of the really interesting parts that I never hear anyone talk about how close does Vargas get to becoming an early Quinlan? Mm -hmm. Because when his wife is being fucked with by the gang and she's been, you know, drugged and taken somewhere. Probably Vargas, raped. It's implied gang raped, basically. It's, it's implied, yeah, gang raped. Um, he even says at one point, you know, I'm not a police officer. I'm a husband. Listen, I'm no cop now. I'm a husband. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? My wife! And, and he, he's getting ready to, to step outside the lines and take, you know, extrajudicial vengeance, essentially. And so it it's very interesting that Quinlan is the 20-year aftermath of, of essentially being a character that took that decision after his wife was murdered. And we see Vargas walk right up to that line uh, in this movie at the end. Well, and, um, it, and, and it, especially because we know that um, the guy that Quinlan... Uh, planted the dynamite evidence for actually yep. did confess to planting the bomb. Well, so Quinlan, Quinlan was right. Well, we don't know. It could have been not coercion, they sort of but they, they imply the room open that he could be right. Yeah, like yeah. you said. Like yeah. it, that's why I say the genius of it is. Like I actually think some people will miss this, especially because it's so much about the performances. You'll think at the end, all oh, right. So what he finds is that the Quinlan guy just corruptly. It's like no, he had a corrupt method, but he was right at the time. That's why actually he was sort of teetering on the line of like he's sort of doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And then it's at the end he embraces like evil essentially. I mean that's why to me the most shocking thing to me isn't even like the, how they fuck with his wife or the fact that like he tries to uh, kill Vargas directly. It's the moment when he kills his own partner. Buddy, give me Vargas's gun. Okay. Okay, here it is. Do it, do it. Right. Uh. Uh. The guy who'd been carrying a from the whole fucking movie. And also, there's another part, like, when you were talking about that, I wanted to bring up, is an, a very clever social dynamic this movie reveals that you will very rarely see in a movie. Is It's the reason why, it's sound like a mad tangent, but just follow me on this. It's the reason why whenever a popular, well-loved male authority figure in a community is accused of, like, child rape or child pornography or something, the reason why the default approach in history is actually denying
denial. It is not, wow, arrest him, get him out. No, no, it's like this. What happens is people will either go, he couldn't have done that. He is a well-respected, loved figure. Or even worse, like this movie, they'll be like, hey, do you know the things that that man has done? He did great things for, you know, charities in this area. And they'll actually imply sort of like, you know, let's wade up. Yeah, he did this one really bad thing, but look at all the good he did. And, like, and that, as you see here, like that, at the end of the movie, even when he's essentially told these people, you do know this person is just planting evidence to railroad innocent people. The vibe of the other cops and people in the circle is sort of like, let it go. He's a great guy, though, and this is just not a big deal, is it? That's like, I, like the actual scene where his own partner, who he ends up shooting, is saying, like, do you know what you're doing? I thought the Charlton Heston character has the greatest response. Well, what's he done? Yeah, he's just put yeah. everyone in fucking prison, you, you, know, to, you know. But like, that that's actually like, again, to put that on camera in the 50s is very brave. Like, yes. that's exactly the sort of social dynamic people don't want to acknowledge. You want yes. it to be like a Western where, of course, the good guy, Sheriff, you know, arrests all the bad guys and we all agree, oh, they're all bad. Yeah, great. End of the movie. Like, you don't want this. Because well, what this movie actually implies, by the way, is obviously this is a movie in real life. None of this good shit happens at the end. In real life, we'd have railroaded the guy. She's raped and he goes to prison and they, they, the bad guys win. That's almost, to me, what the obvious implication of the movie is. That's why, like you say, Richard, it's actually a very, like, delicate topic they're dealing with of this whole blurring of the border to what's America, what is Mexico, what should we expect of either side? Well, I also think, Thorin, to your point earlier about Charlton Heston's acting job, I don't think, you know, he's given much with his character because his character oh, is no. just such a goody-goody that there's, yes. not, there's not a lot of depth. But, but I will say that when the, some of the best scenes do have good acting from Charlton Heston, such as when he realizes that the evidence has been planted because he opens the shoebox in the apartment. Previously, there was no dynamite in there. And then Quinlan ro rocks up and says, like, oh, there was dynamite within this shoebox. And he just says, no. And you can see the wheels turning with him where you know it, it's a very complicated situation because he could be perceived he knows he could be perceived as trying to cover up for sanchez because sanchez is, is mexican and so it, it might be you know it might be perceived that he is trying to say that sanchez didn't did it or lying about it but he has to figure out a way to prove that this decorated cop is in fact the one who is doing this easy to blow up as people seem to think it doesn't go off quite that easy you found the dynamite in this box dynamite yeah pete found it told you that captain yeah i looked in that box just now there wasn't anything there and then that escalates to the later scene in which he discovers that quinlan on his ranch had ordered dynamite and two sticks were missing so he has actually found the record of that quinlan could have had these two sticks of dynamite and to your to your point of what you were talking about why that scene is so brilliant is they call quinlan in and it's just a conversation about hey we found this document that says you bought dynamite where are the other two sticks dude and the level of outrage that Quinlan fakes, that, that Orson Welles fakes to deflect any criticism or potential, you know, investigation to himself, even turns the other cop characters and, and saying like, oh, we're so sorry we even asked you about this, even though obviously they're all police officers, totally reasonable conversation to have, oh. but it gets shut down because he tries to flip it on its head as though, oh, look at me, I have this, you know, perfect career, how could you possibly suspect me? I could never have done this, even though that's his M.O. and he's done it, as we see with Charlton Heston investigating the records, dozens of times to get these convictions, planting the evidence. And even if he's right, it is a question of do the ends justify the means? And, and the answer is no. 
no, right? And the answer and is we're no. The ones he, that is not a minor detail, though. The idea that the audience comes to the conclusion with the main character, Charlie Heston, that's not... Because here's the thing. I actually have a whole thing. I'll probably do a video on it on my side channel in the future. I actually think one of the really sinister things about American media that's supposedly fictional is I actually think the whole purpose of procedurals, like police procedurals, hospital ones, is just to give you an undue bias in favour of people like that. And if you ever watch a modern cop show, Monty... You're supposed to pull for the cop to do circumvent the law if he has to, because you know, you've seen on camera that that is the bad guy. In fact, in a normal movie, if you really know, because you saw the opening scene, the guy put a bomb in, you're supposed to want him to get caught no matter what. Yeah. Normally, you actually pull for the corruption, believe it or not. It's sort of baked into the concept that, you know, maybe occasionally we have to sort of turn a blind eye to get the guy. This movie, actually, in a very bold statement in the late 50s, comes to the conclusion, like, that is never acceptable, even yeah. if it actually is the guy who did the crime. And that's why I wanted to bring this up with Richard actually because I've actually referenced this in the past then or in some like I think maybe when we were answering a question on by the numbers or something this actual role that Orson Welles plays this character in this movie I have found so important as a touchstone myself in journalism dude because this is exactly the person I don't ever want to be I hate those stories that you know them yeah. like put it this way let's just say there was a third person attempted to report on that Danny EG story and you know what Monty some of the things he reported based on my investigations are true they were just things that I couldn't totally corroborate or maybe we're inappropriate in a storyline so in that case i actually almost want to say to that person like bro it's not just that we knew the information was real it still has to check out we has to pass every test it has to get to a certain standard otherwise you risk this you risk the time where you have the feeling like that guy's guilty but maybe it's blurring the line maybe you just don't like that person maybe so that guy did a different crime in the past and you just want him nailed no matter what i don't ever as a journalist want to be the guy who goes over that line and does the corrupt angle because in my opinion i've always said this those rules like the procedure of independently verifying sources dude that protects you as as much as it protects the bloody story like it ensures yeah. you don't step into this like moral gray area where suddenly you essentially are making yourself the judge the jury and the executioner well that's that's ultimately you know what what awesome wells is sort of from a you know a personification of right it's like what happens when institutional guardrails are just completely yes. foregone because the results you know yeah they're right but the the methods are not sound you know, you couldn't replicate his police investigation because he goes out and buys some dynamite and puts it in a box and puts it in a bathroom and then has his assistant go and get it. And he goes, look, we've even found the, the weapons. We've got everything we need. You as a honest police officer couldn't replicate that because you're not willing to go outside those guardrails. And it's interesting because, you know, bringing up journalism, you know, that's obviously the great failing of the past 10 years yep, is essentially the, the, the inst people in journalism as a profession have utterly convinced themselves that they can remove those guardrails and listen, the people we're writing about probably did some bad shit and they're probably bad people with bad intentions. Yeah. So let's not give them the objectivity that we would give the people we do like who we occasionally have to write about. And you've seen that metastasize and you've seen that really erode. You know, the, the problem is once it starts to erode institutional faith, you have to go further and further outside of the boundaries to t try and retain some sort of credibility. You have to make the fictional monsters that you're slaying bigger and bigger to keep people's interests. Well, and, it's, and, it's... And, and, you know, that, that's what Hank Quinlan is. Hank Quinlan is a testament to what happens if you 
let yourself become completely untethered from your ethics. Well, it's also, you know, it's all done under the guise of noble intentions, too, where we have to sure. protect society, which is what Quinlan is doing. He is putting bad people away. I mean, that's that's yeah. uncontroversial. Just think about, I think what's so fascinating to me about this movie is think about the state of affairs at the end of this film. It is objectively better than when the film started, which is very unusual for a film noir. Like in The Maltese Falcon, it kind of resets to just nothing has changed effectively as a result and of the entire movie. objectively better because the police officer's dead. Well, not only that, not only that, but think about it. He kills uh, Uncle Grandy as well. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. to frame Susie, right, as, as, as saying that she murdered him, which is implausible because obviously she wouldn't be strong enough to choke that guy out, but whatever. Uh, we'll ignore that. That was kind of a weird choice. Um, but, you know, he frames her with the, the, the drugs and, and then the murder of, of Uncle Joe Grandy. But remember, Uncle Joe Grandy is a drug kingpin. Yeah. Right. So with him dead, he kind of cuts the head off the snake of the criminal organization. Sanchez, we find out, admits to placing the car bomb in order to uh, make his he killed a man because he's married, secretly married to his daughter. And in order to kind of clear up that situation and make him accepted, you know, and also it says like, oh, well, it was not socially acceptable for a Mexican man to marry a, a white American woman, which is what had happened in that instance. So we have two kind of interracial marriages that are the core uh, relationships of this movie. So the real criminal ultimately gets arrested and the corrupt cop dies. You know, it's like every problem has actually been solved by the end of this movie in some way, shape or form. The real thing as well that's scary about sort of Quinlan's character is, you know, and, and again, it, it's just a masterful performance from Wells and, and masterful script, also by Wells because he handled uh, the screenplay. Um, you know, it, it, it's the how blasé he is about the corruption. That's another aspect that I'm sure, you know, Duncan understands. That there's a bit, again, I wrote it down, where, where they do that interrogation initially of the suspect. And while they're taking him away, a police officer goes, you'll have to, you'll have to put him at the scene of the crime. And he just goes, we will. And you'll have to get some evidence. We'll get it. Show motive, yes. Don't you need a bit more than that? Yeah, we'll get it. Oh, there's my coffee. Didn't you bring me any donuts or sweet rolls? You'll have to put him on the scene of the crime. We will. We've got to have some evidence. We'll get it. We'll... He's so blinkered and 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 so he 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 knows he will go to whatever lengths he has to do to make this stick because of his hunch, you know. And 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 his hunch is obviously informed by all of his negative characteristics, and then also just so happens to likely be correct i mean you know it, it, it's it's terrifying it's it, it's a really terrifying kind of like paradigm where you know you've got this institutionally corrupt police officer who's well liked because he is putting bad people away he's liked by his fellow officers he's liked by members of the town you know he's feared by the the criminals and his sensibilities are still sharp he can he's still not he's still got an eye for the the breakdown of who committed a crime motive all of that but then when it comes to staying in the institutional guardrails he, he simply will not he is he is he is a man that is like he's been reduced to just giving into his sort of instincts i think i think that's why the food thing is there as well 
You know, when like they bring him his coffee and he, he, he immediately starts going, what, no donuts as well? And they're like going, okay, well, we're going to arrest this guy. And he goes, you couldn't even get me a sweet roll? And he's like almost outraged that there's not food there. And he's eating in almost every the scene. The candy bar, yeah, yeah. The candy bar, you know? Um, and, and he hasn't been able to control his alcoholism in the past. And by yeah, the end he, of the movie, he you know falls off the wagon after 12 yeah. years or whatever. That's the part that people miss, though, I feel like. Everyone remembers the Wells performance. They remember how great it is, right? But actually, that's the key demarcation in the movie. If you think, I'll tie it to what you just said, Monty. If you go to the point where the Grandy character convinces him to get drunk and then he makes all these bad decisions, up to that point in the movie, if the movie ends there, it's an awesome movie. Like, all those people, he was like the guy he was framing, it turned out, was guilty. Like, again, his actual old MO would have played out fine and he'd have gone on to the next case. His problem is when he gets mega drunk because the, the Uncle Grandy guy, like, plays on the fact that, like, he was formerly an alcoholic. That's when he then makes the critical, like, mistake of the he's going to fuck over the Vargas guy who is totally innocent and isn't involved in any crime at all. Like that's essentially what fucks him, which if you think about it is also just like, it's playing into the idea of like being tempted at your like weakest possible angle. And as you see, even with food, which he's obviously used to replace his alcoholism, he has no impulse control, does he? So when he gives into this aspect, I mean, what's funny is in a way, they even put a redemptive element within the character like that, which is that's why he kills the grande character himself and all that. Like, it's almost like he still has to like do the right thing in that regard and get rid of the guy that he knows is a scumbag, even though he's actually like in a moment of weakness, given in and aligned with that character and done yeah. something potentially terrible, hasn't he? By the way, another thing I want to throw in here, because again, just from awesome world documents, I know a lot of like interesting side stories. So here's an amazing one for you. Just like I say, how the one with Charlton Heston basically being like, hey, you know, Orson Welles is here. We just have him do the movie. Similarly, Monty, right? A lot of people don't know this. This is nothing people don't know about uh, Orson Welles. It's so funny that in Hollywood, he has this terrible rep and they make him sound like the most unlikable diva piece of shit ever because like you say Richard every bloody book or document you watch people loved this motherfucker this was like a captain my captain guy you run through a wall for like like that story I told later about how he's making movies like Othello later on his own dime dude stuff's happening like real working actors are just coming and doing it for fuck all pennies just to be in his film and like help do his vision it's actually the opposite on the ground here's my problem I've always felt this guy had when he's on the ground face to face he seems like one of the most charismatic people ever who has that like crazy like aura effect on you and I'll bet in person he can talk you or anything but he seems like one of those guys and this tends to follow people like that well when it's extricated from that and we're talking about some like cold business like legal set they're terrible in that setting because their superpower's gone they essentially don't have like the juice that makes it work so an interesting detail people might find is the people who made this movie didn't even know Marlena Dietrich who's a legendary European actress was in the movie I think she's actually someone that Orson Welles just like because he's friends with all these actors just said like oh do you want to play this like side part there's even a story where supposedly they go to her and say can we put your name on the like the top of the billing and she makes a joke that's like yeah if you pay me my like billing fee if you pay me what you currently pay me keep my name off the poster because obviously if you don't know she's a center if you don't know that she's a legendary actor she's just a bit part in the movie she's Although, by the way, it, she, she has yeah, the line great. of the fucking movie at the end obviously with that like soliloquy about the hank quinlan character but anyway the point i was going to make was that's the other thing that's fascinating about awesome wells he has an insane like sex appeal just charisma with all of his actors it's even implied if people don't know this is why it's so interesting to me that he did become so fat and over the top and obese and ridiculous later it's implied that like when he was a young man like this it's also implied by the way he was fucking all these co-stars that like he was oh, yeah. that sort of like an insane Casanova character where, where it's like the modern big superstars where they're always dating you know the love interest in the movie 
This guy was in, people don't realize he had an insane magnetic effect on him. So again, you just don't get like that character in the movie. You don't get those great lines. Like you can tell whatever they started with the original script. I guarantee it was nothing like this. This guy, this no. is, they really made like a masterpiece out of this. Yeah. They, they, I mean, for me, I, I think this, this movie is like, I, I like that. It's got the awesome Wells issues which is Orson Welles is a notoriously sloppy editor. I think that's fair criticism. I think, you know, obviously sometimes that's because the studio were fucking with him and then he's trying to counterfuck back and you never know which edit's going to get through. And and this movie was fraught with that. There's three different versions of this movie, uh, which were released in, in, yeah, well, four actually, now that we've got the definitive cut. But, you know, and, and and think about it, like he was in a constant battle with the studios all the time. But I still think there's some jarring cuts in this which is just classic Orson Welles, scene over, next scene. But the way this movie is shot, it is one of the best, it's one of the best looking noir movies. You oh, know, not just, of, not just of its time. It, it is it is amazing. The scene where Quinlan uh, strangles um, Uncle, Uncle Grandy and the strobing light outside and Janet Lee wakes up to the body with the fucking bloodshot bug eyes out of its skull. It's fucking. It's just masterful cinema. It's Hitchcockian. It's it, it's 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 as good a sequence as you'll see in any of these movies. And so for me, I, I, I think it's crazy to think this movie had a negative critical reception at the time. That's wild, not ne not not negative, just not lauded, I suppose. Some people recognized its brilliance. But this is when you knew the Hollywood system was super against Orson Welles because it took, I want to say, until like the late 80s for this movie to get a critical reevaluation. I think, again, it was probably pushed by Roger Ebert. Um, but this movie... It regularly makes greatest movie lists. Oh, easily, yeah. At, at, at the time, do you, know, do you know how many TV shows and movies you will see the poster for this movie on a wall in the background? Loads, <laughs> yeah. of, loads yeah. of. I think it's even in Mad Men or something. It's yeah. loads of them, mate. Loads. At, at, at the time, Universal tried to bury the film. They didn't want it. It got it. It got entered into the Brussels Film Festival, where it won, <laughs> right? But they were trying to get it pulled. Because they didn't want anybody to fuck. They thought, he's done it again, fuck Wells. And the critics at the time were like, oh, you know, Orson Wells is a bit hammy in it, actually. And it's like, what? Is, what that mad? Yeah, what are we watching? So <laughs> it, it sort of took until the 80s to get a critical reevaluation and people to actually look at this film. And then, you know, uh, in the Chicago Tribune, uh, you know, they called it the pinnacle, close to the pinnacle of film noir, which is interesting because... It's the end of film noir. I thought you said it well at the beginning of this episode. Like, the real problem with this movie is, it is right. It's like after this one, you may as well not I make mean. any more film noir. Unless you're going to do it <laughs> LA Confidential style where you're intentionally doing like a nostalgia. I love that. Yeah. The joke is, this is like the 2001 A Space Odyssey of film noir. Like it's, it's over at this point. Like You can't go any further. <laughs> and the main performance is just too good. It's just too good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, a couple more details. One is obviously, if you know old actresses as well, Janet Leigh is a classic actress, right? Yeah. From Psycho One, as well, yeah, yeah. She's, she's mega. She's really good. She plays exactly the type you want. But the joke is, even though this movie is before, 
because she is so iconic for Psycho, I guarantee when you watch this film and they even go to those motels, you'll immediately be like, wait a, wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even though this With is before... Weird, that, that weird dude as well. Like, it's just an oh, no reason. Yeah. There's also another thing that shows you how the general level of acting is way bigger in this movie than uh, Maltese Falcon. Because the guy who plays like the shit version of like what would have been the fucking psycho character in the psycho, you know, the guy who's looking after the hotel you're talking yeah, about, the he is yeah. fucking appalling. He's the actor so who plays that role is absurd. Like he is so bad. Like he shouldn't even get money for making this movie. Like it's actually a description. <laughs> That's like one of those ones where I want to come in, like that fucking, the Al Pacino character out of Glen Gary, Glen Ross and be like, hey, whose fucking cousin is this? Like, yeah, who is this a... guy that he's in this? Because everyone else is good in this movie. That guy's a fucking bomb. By the way, an actual underrated performance is the guy who plays the partner of Hank Quinlan. I thought that guy did a pretty yeah. good job as sort of like the the guy who's making up. Like, like I say, he had a bit of Renfield energy, but he was a pretty legit character that was actually good job that guy. Yeah. He's also yeah. in loads of movies as a character actor. I, I, I think you do have to mention some of the weaker parts of this movie. Like, Janet Lee is good. Also, I didn't know she was Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. So that was yeah, an interesting yeah. revelation yeah. when I was looking into this, uh, into this movie. Yeah. I think she's really good. Unfortunately, I think they're... A lot of the scenes around the motel are just really terrible, it's honestly. It's part of the movie, the hotel shit in there. I know. Why, why do we keep going back to this motel where she's trying to sleep and the music is going on? It, it just drags on way too long. And then, as you say, mm -hmm. Thorin, the guy, I don't know the guy's name who plays that, the night man at the hotel, he's just It's like just shit, just Jerry terrible. Lewis, basically, and he's just really bad. He's just, it's, he's like, I actually thought initially, and they're doing this on purpose, he's just really bad at acting. Also, by the way, obviously a part of the movie that has aged in insanely badly is that they get going to mainline weed into her you yeah. know like you ever tried to marijuana like uh that part, you know, that, part not, is. that hasn't worked out, that part hasn't worked out well that has, like you yeah. say the saddest part is they actually do imply something weird dark, darker that they're gonna do that so they can rape her like so she'll yeah. be all subdued and fucked up which they don't really like they don't hit it hard in the movie basically you might even miss that and they like, don't even you notice they don't even give her the marijuana they give a they give a sodium pentothal, don't they? The truth yes. serum or whatever the fuck, and then blow marijuana on her uh, clothes. And even the drug kingpin goes, "I hope you d uh, didn't inhale." He <laughs> says what? to his he says to his cousins or whatever they are, "I hope you didn't <laughs> inhale." It's no like drug no keys in my family. It's like it's I don't like know, a key, like a slight reefer madness touch. Yeah, because yeah, they yeah, even yeah, try it's to got reefer madness energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They literally try to imply, oh, you know all those stories he's saying? He's also a drug addict on the weed yeah. like yeah exactly <laughs> you know, yeah. He's, not, he's on lsd is he like you know what i mean they're making yeah. it sound ridiculous yeah here's what's sad the actual parts before they go to that resort they do a really good job of making it really intimidating for her like when she meets the uncle grande oh, yeah. guy first and like all these implicating people watching her from the other that's all good the problem is like i say it just becomes like almost laughable when they actually go to that like resort place that part's just like so cheesy the whole thing you know it's like i don't know that yeah. part didn't land for me basically yeah yeah no that's fair that's fair and and as i said i think the editing is a bit slipshod in some areas which you forgive because the cinematography is like world you know just mega um and yeah heston doesn't have a lot to do in the movie and um, even at his peak uh orson wells blows him away but none of those things sort of detract from the overall power of the film like i i think when you you know you compare it to some of the others and you talk about the weaker aspects of the movie they they do stand out you know mary astra and the maltese falcon 
you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's have less of her and more of, you know, Sydney Green Street or whatever. And you're, you're very cognizant of that while it's happening. But actually in this movie, with the exception of the hotel scenes, which, yeah, there was too many of those. This movie zips along, you know? It's, oh, it's, it's well a, acted, yeah. yeah this is good. It, 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 it zips along, and every time Orson Welles is in the scene, you just don't want it to end. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. just it's just wonderful. It uh, really, really is. Like, to me, this is, this is in, that, in that sense, it is a classic Orson Welles film, because it's just a flawed gem. There's mm. aspects that are clearly, like you say, a bit hokey. Like the man but, himself, you know? Yeah. No, exactly, but, but it is also, it's got a real quality to it underneath it all that is mega. And that performance, this just that's how you know the really great performances, in my opinion. They are timeless. Like, this time, this could be a performance from any time period. That's so good. I just think yeah. this this holds up just insanely well from a from a art perspective because the the concepts that it explores are so interesting and so deep and it doesn't have you know I think it succeeds at exploring multiple different themes and really making you question things all at the same time I mean this is a movie from 1958 and there are still a lot like a lot of stereotypes around Mexicans or Mexican Americans that persist mm -hmm. uh, around the narcotics trade especially which is you know, been ongoing for what almost seventy years since this movie has been made, and it still makes you makes people wrestle with these stereotypes. Right? It, it's amazing that it can do that for for such a long time afterwards. And unfortunately, we unfortunately we still have so many of these issues and and so many fraught problems around Mexican and American relations. But it does that at the same time. While it's 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 really exploring timeless questions about do the ends justify the means. Um, is it better to put bad people in prison through the wrong ways? Like even if, if, if it's noble, right? What is the punishment that a man like Quinlan deserves, if any? Um, it, I think it's, it's really brilliant in the ethical explorations that it does. And it does it in multiple different ways and is still highly relevant today. I think it's a great movie. Like, yeah. again, just like when we were talking about Maltese Falcon, I feel like people won't be able to appreciate this came out in the late 50s. Like, the actual, like, main anti-hero character of Hank Quinlan and the way his story, like, that could be, like, fucking true detective or something. Now oh, yeah. it's that, like, on point, you know, like, it's actually, I, again, it's why I get why people probably didn't get the movie when it came out. This is so different from a normal film. Like, it's you're not just going and paying for a popcorn movie and going, right, it, it's Amy. It's like, this is complicated shit, and it's very nuanced, and I actually, that's, I I even imagine at the time, I'm complaining about the acting. If you were used to shit acting and people's reading lines, I bet you don't really get what Orson Welles is doing when you, if you haven't seen many great films and great actors at this point in time, probably goes over your head a bit. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, wh why this is one of my like all time favorites, it, you know, it, it's, it's something you can always come back to. And I think it, no matter how many times I've seen this movie, and I've probably seen it like, I don't know, 30, 40 times conservatively. Um, I always pick up on nice new little details and little aspects of performance and shot composition. And th this is just, this is, this is cinema as a high art. And yes, yeah, some of that is going to feel sometimes a bit silly. Sometimes it's not going to fall in line with your understanding of reality. Sometimes it does date itself a little bit. But the core elements of what makes a movie great are like all five star here. They're, they're all here. Performance, you know, cinematography, you know, excellent script, excellent dialogue. The line Duncan was talking about for me is uh, probably like 
right up there as potentially the line of a movie and a movie full of quotables when when he is talking to tana and basically he's drunk he's fallen off the wagon and he leans across and he knocks over a deck of tarot cards and he says like what is it uh read my future for me and she just looks at him and goes you haven't got any come on read my future for me you haven't got any Hmm? What do you mean? Your future is all used up. Uh, fucking savage, like, and just almost tragic. I, it, 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 the film. Toys I mean, her calls and lines are unbelievable, yeah. aren't they? Right? So he was yeah. some kind of a man. Like, what a fuck. Yeah, he was well, some kind of a man. How do you even write a line like that? It's fucking yeah. unbelievable. Well, That's it, like poetry. I mean, the yeah. last I, the last line, what is it? It's like, what does it matter what you say about people? Which yeah. is also just amazing. Mega line as well, well yeah. Well, with, yeah, within within the context of, of Quinlan, his legacy, you know, Vargas, like what, you know, his incorruptibility. Yeah, yeah, this film's just a fucking classic. As I said, it regularly gets high up in the top 100 lists for cinema. It's a, it's a beautiful time capsule. It's probably, it probably is the last great Orson Welles movie, maybe. Uh, like truly great, like Citizen Kane levels of greatness. Um, although you know, I have uh, I have a soft spot for Chimes at Midnight, um, but uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend this movie enough. I, I just think it, again, if you if you can't find something to enjoy in this film, noir definitely isn't for you. This is the this is the bookend of noir. It is the, the this of is the as classic far as noir. the genre. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is as far as classic noir can be taken nobody tried again for like close to a decade because it's just such a fucking good film well i would say to as closing thought on this movie goes like this right even though you can just you don't actually have to know anything unlike some other movies we've talked about in some of the past you don't have to have seen any other movie to watch this movie if you just watch this movie just watch Orson Welles understand that that's all makeup and prosthetics he doesn't look like that at all at the time and you'll just realize like Richard says you, you won't want any of the scenes with him to ever end like it's f phenomenal it's even a great movie to rewatch as a result because when you don't have that like impetus of the plot you can just fucking ease back and just really soak in the performance which is fucking phenomenal like I say the reason why there's so many close-ups is what an amazing like subtle actor this guy was as well he didn't like chew the scenery all the time some of it's just subtle like even the way he like smokes a cigar like Richard says is mega iconic it's like perfect <laughs> it's exactly the sort of like scum fuck semi-corrupt cop you imagine but here's what I will say is like the one that'll really bake your noodle I alluded to it earlier but people don't think this through the movie constantly with the Quinlan character is about who he was and what he did in the past and what a great man he was. He was a guy who's solved all these cases to the extent, by the way, that now he is so beyond reproach. He doesn't even have to make it plausible. He can just be like, oh, there we go. Uh, there's the murder weapon. And then everyone just goes, yeah, of course. You've done it again. Brilliant. Here's what people won't think about. When he goes up to the Marlena Dietrich character, and as she says, she doesn't recognize him at all. She didn't even know it was him, even though it's implied they've had some sort of love affair in the past, and she was maybe the one like good woman aside from his wife that he's had this thing with, like that like keeps him grounded, as it were. Think of this. If this was, I don't know, pick a time period, 10 years earlier, when he wasn't a fat, out-of-weight character, imagine he's the same guy who hasn't yet gone fully evil, and he's doing this method... 
if it, if this same movie is a really good looking in shape guy who's charismatic and he's solving all the crimes, he'd be the fucking hero of the movie. The joke is, like I say, if there wasn't that whole thing where he gets drunk by the Uncle Grande character and the Vargas aspect, he even would have done the same thing and gotten away with it. It's like he would have put another person in prison who was a criminal, but he's this charming guy who circumnavigates. Actually, you could argue institutional failure there, where you can't put away someone you know is a criminal. He would actually be lauded as the hero, but because the way the movie's set up and with this key aspect of what happens with the Vargas guy, you see him revealed in a totally different way. And at the end of the movie, it's very shocking how it ends. Actually, like, like if the, the what's amazing is even though you know this guy is corrupt and actually kind of fucked up, you still feel bad when he dies. You still feel like there's a tragedy in it somehow, like somehow that you wish it didn't have to happen, as it were. So I actually think it's a movie that, like I say, I think there's way more subtleties in this movie than people realize. It's very much not like a fucking roller coaster where you just start at the beginning and you go to the end. Like, there's so much to think about and unpack in this film. Yeah. Well, one of the advantages of us doing kind of all of film noir as a genre is we've been able to cherry pick some, like, all these movies are just bangers, bangers. and must-watch. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's really fun. And people, as I mentioned on the first episode, who, when we actually announced the four films, keep going, you got to add this one, though. It's like, no, no, I know what you mean, but we're not. Like, we've got the four, it's done. And by yeah. the time you see that thing, it's already recorded. Like, it's, it's all really good. Like, look, thanks for the engagement, but we're definitely not adding any movies that you say. Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah. I, maybe one day there'll be, like, a feature where you pay someone and you get to like nominate one but for now you just you just type in comments I, in the saw, uh, I saw a good comment where someone said vampire movies are stupid so i hope you pick a better genre <laughs> next time there you go yeah yeah and it's like dude like listen here you go this is like the, the smartest of all the film oh. genres probably and there's no fright nights out of these four so there you go there you go okay. there you go all right guys it will be uh chinatown of course starring jack nicholson coming up on the next week uh we'll see you then